Open your Bibles with me, if you would, to the book of Romans, chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. We're going to look at this morning a remnant according to grace, the nation of Israel. Just to, to briefly catch the context and the flow, in chapter 9, Paul the Apostle lays out the fact that God is sovereign <laughs> and, and that he is free to save mankind, Jew and Gentile alike, in any way that he chooses. I've talked about sovereignty before. It's his ball, it's his ball game. He makes the rules. We either choose to play or not. But he's demonstrated that he's way beyond needing man's permission to rule over him as he points out that the Jews are just as needful of God's grace and forgiveness as the Gentiles. The Jews had thought they were just a cut above. And they thought that because they had been the ones who carried the oracles of God, that they were sort of maintaining this special status, which they do as a people, but they don't pertaining to salvation. So God has done all of this and he's exercised his sovereignty. And essentially what Paul's been laying out is, 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 is whether they accept it or not, it is still what God is doing and what God is doing is what carries the day, not whether they like it or not. Uh, he's outlined Israel's history in chapter 9. Repeatedly, he hammers home the fact that throughout their history, God has been a choosing God. We've talked about that, that he is a choosing God. They'd agreed with his choices when it suited them uh, or when they directly benefited. However, they disagreed, they stumbled over God's choices when it came to Messiah. They disagreed and stumbled over God's choices when it came to salvation. They didn't like either one in the new covenant. So that was chapter 9. Now in chapter 10, as we move into chapter 10, Paul established the fact that the Jews were solely responsible for how they handled the truth of the gospel. It wasn't that they hadn't heard. They had. It wasn't that they didn't understand the gospel. They did. It wasn't that salvation is hard or difficult. It isn't. It wasn't that God didn't want to save them. He did. Their problem was none of those things. It was that they adamantly rejected God's way of salvation for mankind. Pure and simple. They wrestled over the fact that Jesus had done virtually all of the work, and in doing all of the work, he had leveled the field between Jew and Gentile. Equal salvation available to all regardless. They wrestled with the fact that there was they weren't any better off because of their works, because salvation was now on the basis of faith. So the apostle, he's been connecting these two things. We've looked at, they didn't like his method of salvation. They didn't like his choice of Messiah. And he's been really connecting these all through chapters 9 and 10. Uh, and, and essentially saying in wanting to establish their own righteousness, they're rejecting God's righteousness. We looked at God's righteousness. We looked at what it is to be sanctified uh, or to be justified by faith. In rejecting Jesus, they're rejecting salvation. In preferring salvation on the basis of works, they're rejecting salvation on the basis of grace. God's unmerited favor towards you, towards me, that he saves us by faith because of who he is, never based on who we are. That's why the most abject sinner 
can find grace. That's why the person who has lived a completely moral and upstanding life can find grace. It's not, it's not about us. So as the Jews were, were going down the wrong roads here, they had essentially expressed their disobedience and their rebellious hearts as Paul illustrated throughout chapter 10. In chapters 9 and 10, Paul's been really blunt <laughs> with the Jews uh, while he's writing to a mixed... Now remember, he's writing to a Gentile church, the church at Rome. But he knows that there's a large Jewish contingent there. We know that because at the end of the book, there's a lot of Jewish names there. <laughs> but the point is, he's writing to a mixed audience. And as now in chapter 11, he's going to begin to wrap up as he appeals to both. Uh, and he's going to accomplish this by laying out a series of questions. In chapter 11, he asks a question. We, some are rhetorical, some are not. Uh, but he implies that <clears throat> there are answers to these things. Remember, as we've been talking about Paul through chapters 9, 10, and now 11, that he had spent his life from the day God, God got a hold of him on that Damascus road, and he went into Damascus, he had spent his entire life going into synagogues and appealing to the Jews, appealing to the Gentiles as well. But that was what he had done. So he's been doing this for decades. And have you ever become really practiced at giving an argument or at really practiced at giving an, an opinion or whatever it is? I mean, as you do that, as you go down that road over and over and over again, you get pretty sharp at laying it out. He's got decades of experience. He knows what the questions would be on the Jews' hearts. He knows what the questions would be on the Gentiles' hearts. And so as he's asking these questions, these aren't things that just willy-nilly popped into his mind. These are things that are based on years of experience, years of dialogue, years of understanding of just exactly, because as a Jew himself, of understanding the heart of the average Jew. The main point in chapter 11, in light of all of this, is this. There is no condition in which God is finished with Israel uh, or finished with Jews. That does not exist. And many theologians have expressed, I was reading a popular one yesterday, and he was making the assertion that the church has replaced Israel pertaining to the promises of God. Uh, theological word I have for that, hogwash. <laughs> it's just not so. Uh, there, there's no condition in which God's finished with her. She is still his chosen people. Now, it's true that in chapters 9 and 10 that Israel's rejection of Messiah is seen there, but we're going to clearly see in chapter 11 that God has not rejected them. Even though she rejected Messiah, God did not reject her. Any assertion to the contrary simply demonstrates an unwillingness to accept God's word as the final authority as relates to the nation of Israel and to her people, the Jews. I know that's a bold statement, and, and I know that there may be ones that disagree, and, and yet I believe that, again, God's word is the final authority. It doesn't matter what I think or what, what my opinion is. What does it say here? Essentially, the Jews are here to stay And we as Christians need to be those who stand with Israel. Why? Why do you hear that around Christian circles? 
Oh, we, we support Israel. And I do. We, we adamantly support Israel. Uh, going back to Genesis chapter 12, all the way back almost to the beginning of the Bible, in verses 1 to 3, there's some things going on between God and a guy by the name of Abram. He would become, he would be renamed Abraham as time went on. But in chapter 12, verse 1 of Genesis, we read, Now the Lord said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. So, this is God's covenant with Abraham. A covenant is a contract. It's an agreement. And so, and, and by the way, when it comes to covenants, God is always the one that writes it. <laughs> we don't get to do that. We go with what he's laid out, and that's it. Because Again, he's a sovereign God. But his covenant to Abraham here in these verses in Genesis 12 is that he is promising Abraham a land. That would become the land of Israel. He is also promising Abraham, or Abram, a people. That would be the Jews. That would become the Hebrews. He's also promising him blessing and redemption for his descendants. In verse 3, he says, I will bless those who bless you, listen to this, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And I would invite you, if you want to get more information, New Testament orientation on that, go read the book of Galatians. Uh, Paul has some fabulous, and, and, and other places too, but there's just a, a fabulous exposition there of what it is to be the spiritual seed of Abraham, and that is you and I. However, what he's talking about here are the covenant family of Abraham, and that's the Jews. So when we look at the United States, the United States, is I don't believe that it is found in prophecy, but I do believe that this principle applies, that this principle of blessing and cursing applies as it relates to Israel. He says, I'll bless those who bless you, curse him who curses you. Ask the average American what their opinion is about Israel. And I'll guarantee you, you're going to get a whole variety of answers. However, God's promise stands. The promise inherited by the covenant descendants of Abram, the Jewish people, remains true today. It's the root reason for the decline and death of a number of empires throughout history. If you think about it, you go back and you look. I just made some quick notes there. I'm sure there's more. But when the Greeks came in and they desecrated the temple under a guy by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, he was a bad guy. Uh, he was a very anti-Semitic man. And, and they just thrashed the temple. He sacrificed on the altar and all of that. Shortly after, the Greeks lost their empire, overthrown by Rome. The Romans, in 70 AD, destroyed the temple, wiped the temple mount clean. The rocks are still, the stones are still from the temple mount, denting the roads below, uh, looking along the western wall there. Their empire fell. Rome fell apart not long after that. Moving down through history, you see that Spain, you've heard of the Spanish Inquisition. They went from being a prominent nation to being a fifth-rate nation because of the Inquisition. Look at his, Hitler's Germany. What has taken place with that, what took place with that nation with the Holocaust. They lost. Britain, uh, I could go into a whole thing with the Balfour Declaration and all that, but essentially Britain's empire dissolved 
after the Balfour Declaration where they actually, they had good intentions but turned their back on Israel. It's also worth mentioning that both the Six-Day War in 1967 and the Yom Kippur War in 1973, in both of those wars, God miraculously, he miraculously protected Israel. He ensured their victory against huge odds. I mean, in, in, in 1967, where Egypt came up and, and Jordan came across and Syria came down and they had this whole wedge thing that they were, and in six days, Israel prevailed. That was the hand of God. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. And history proves that out, folks. I shudder when I look at what's happening in our nation and how we are on the brink, on the edge of turning our back on this little nation. Interesting, if God repeatedly, here's a question, just a rhetorical question. If God repeatedly demonstrates his forbearance towards Israel in the midst of their ongoing disobedience and rebellion throughout their history, how long suffering is he towards you, towards me? How far will he go? There is an end to it. We're going to look at that. But where we wrapped up last week talking about that is in chapter 10, verse 21. He says, but to Israel, he says, all day long, I've stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Remember, as we as we closed last week, it was as though God is standing there with his arms out appealing to this nation. Please come. I have blessing. I have abundance for you. No chapter breaks. Going from that statement into chapter 11, verse 1, he says, I say then, or the, actually it's better rendered, I ask then, has God cast away his people? Has God turned his back on Israel? Has he disowned this nation, these people? So that's, remember I talked about there's questions and answers here in, in chapter 11. He leads off with this question. This is the first one. In other words, has he has he disowned the Jews? Is he done with the Jews? Seeing that, and what they would be looking at is they'd be seeing that the Gentiles had had become a point of focus. They had come into into prominent view because the gospel had gone. It was offered to the Jews, and when they rejected Messiah, God said, "I will send that to the Gentiles." And a Gentiles, anybody that's not Jewish, and so the Jews in that day would be looking at this and saying, "Well." What does that have to do? What is, how does that work as far as we're concerned? Is God no longer concerned with us, with the Jews? Is he only concerned with believing Jews? And it's as though Paul is anticipating their questions here. And going on in verse 1, he says, certainly not. That's an emphatic no. <laughs> he says, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, Paul uses himself here. He says, is God finished with the Jews? Well, let me tell you something. I'm one of them. And he's not finished with me. He he says, look, let me give you my lineage. He's a Messianic Jew, and uh, he's proof that this casting away has not been complete. Remember, though, we have talked about God shifted from having a group of people, the Jews, to a, a group of individuals as far as the church goes, as far as the people of God now. That is true with Israel. We're going to look at that as we look at what it is that there is a remnant in the land that is faithful Israel. So uh, <laughs> when he says this, he says, you know, uh, of the seed of Abraham, the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin 
being a prominent tribe because the, the land that Benjamin encompasses is where Jerusalem is. It's in the, it's in, it's in the, the land of Benjamin. So he was a guy that was central. He grew up central in Judaism. The translation of this is you don't get any more Jewish than that. And as we've seen, Paul had been, remember we've looked at him in his life prior to, to Christianity. He had been a bloodthirsty <laughs> religious zealot in Judaism. That was his past. So as we look back at his conversion, uh, have you ever thought about why did Paul get saved? Why did God get a hold of him? Why did Jesus get a hold of him on that road? And, and it's, a, it's a question that's worth asking as we're looking at the question, is God finished with Israel? And that's why God saved him. Uh, remember, it, when Jesus was telling Ananias that when Paul, after the, the road, he went to, he said, go on into the city and wait three days and, and somebody will come and lay hands on you. You'll receive your sight and all of that. Guy by the name of Ananias. Uh, in Acts 9.15, he it, God is telling Ananias because Ananias says, oh, this is a bad dude. I don't know if you've got this right, God. <laughs> you know, this is, I've heard about him. And, and God says, no, no, no. In Acts 9.15, he says, Paul is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. So if the church was somehow replacing Israel, why would Jesus say that? That is actually a, just a very strong proof that God is not. Because the instructions, even before Paul is made aware of it, where God is dealing with, Jesus is dealing with Ananias and saying, look, he is my vessel and he is going to go to the nation of Israel. If the church replaced Israel, as far as the promises of God goes, there would be no need for that. Uh, verse two, he says, God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Now, Paul emphatically states here that God is, has not disowned the Jews. It's also interesting here that he states that those whom God foreknew. I want to talk about foreknowledge for a minute. The foreknowledge of God should never be something that we wrestle with. Some do. Some try to make a big deal out of it. But you know, it, the, one of the rules of, of interpreting God's word is to go with the simplest possible explanation. In this case, God knew ahead of time. It's really simple. Uh, but I want to look at this question for a minute. If the foreknowledge of God is something that we don't want to wrestle with, think of the options here. Which makes more sense? If I were to say, as is said here in the text, God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew, or God has not cast away his people whom he previously knew nothing about. That's entirely illogical. It's inconsistent to conclude that God would not have foreknowledge. Of course he does. He's God. Paul is simply stating the nature of the relationship. God foreknew Israel before his, to be his own people. He foreknew them before the sons of Jacob, Israel, went down to Egypt and became a nation. He foreknew them when he made a covenant, the covenant we looked at with Abraham, before there was a land of promise. He foreknew them when he brought eight people through the flood, Noah and his family, Shem, would become the ancestral head of the Hebrew race, one of his sons. He foreknew them when, in the midst of cursing humanity, God made a reference to the seed of the woman from whom they, as well as the Christ, would descend. The foreknowledge of God is all over the word of God. 
I take great comfort and security in that because we don't have foreknowledge, do we? But you know, we are finite beings and whenever, uh, and it's mysterious. We don't understand the, the nuts and bolts of his foreknowledge. And that's a good thing. We're finite beings. He's an infinite being. And whenever, I've shared with you guys before, don't be afraid to say, I don't know. Because whenever you have finite man bumping up against infinite God, one word comes out the, the end of that thing, and that's the word mystery. There are things that are mysterious. I don't understand it. I don't, and I freely confess, I probably never will, this side of heaven. But I trust that God, in his foreknowledge, knows what he's doing. Verse 2, finishing up, he says, Or do you not know that the scripture says of Elijah how he pleads with the God of Israel, saying, Lord, they've killed your prophets, torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. So Paul here is giving another example from their history, and he's referring to 1 Kings chapter 9, as the entire nation had fallen into just rank idolatry. Uh, it's talking about the northern ten tribes, the northern kingdom in Israel. And they had fallen into Baal worship, which was a, a false deity that was linked to fertility, and it, it was very perverse in its exercise. And uh, the people were just chasing after the, the false teachings of Baal. And they did that for centuries, by the way. Uh, Now, Elijah, looking at him, after he had had this great victory, after he had gone with the 400 false prophets of Baal, you know, he had gone there, they did the thing with the water and the trench and the whole deal, and fire, he'd watched literally fire come down and consume these false prophets. He watched them go up in smoke. Queen Jezebel, uh, the queen, uh, she was a foreign queen, we'll get to that in a minute, she wasn't happy with that. So she threatened Elijah uh, with his life. She said, by this time tomorrow, I'm going to have your head. And so, I, and I always puzzle, you know, when I read this story, gang, I, I just puzzle over it. I think, you know, here's this big, bold guy, Elijah. Man, I'm the one. I'm God's guy. And he's a, you know, John the Baptist is told you know, you're, that he'll minister in the spirit and the power of Elijah because Elijah was a big deal. He was a strong man. He was a, a very strongly anointed man to carry out the things of God. He's responsible here for seeing that God destroys all these prophets. And then this woman threatens him and he takes off and he starts running across the nation because he's scared. And I just think, I there I must have missed something in that story somewhere. Uh, but on the run across the land, he'd hidden in a cave, frightened, depressed, tired, and it was here that God comes to him. And I love this scene. I mean, yeah, I, I don't, I just love what God has to say. He essentially comes to Elijah in this cave. And he says, Elijah, what are you doing here? And it's like, to me, it's just, it borders on the comical because here's this guy and he's done all this running and he's trying to get away and all of that. And essentially God just says, what are you doing? It's like, excuse me, <laughs> why are you here? In First Kings 19.14, picking it up there, Elijah says to God, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword. This is what Paul is referring to here in Romans chapter 11. I alone am left and they seek to take my life. Now I want you to notice something here. 
he's not talking about a foreign enemy. He's not saying the Assyrians are out to get me. Oh, the Babylonians, those terrible guys, they're just breathing down my neck. He's talking about his own people. He's talking about Israel. And he says, look, they have killed the prophets. They've, they've torn down your altars, the, the altars to Yahweh. Uh, he says, I'm, a, I, I'm the only one left. Now, Elijah had been greatly used of God in standing against Israel's idolatry, uh, remember, seeing the fire come down and all. Uh, but the first thing we see here after that is that he's running away and hiding from trouble when he had been known for running towards it. You ever think about it with police training or security training? One of the things that they teach officers to do is you run towards the guy that has the gun. You run towards trouble. And, and here's Elijah, this guy that has been, he knows that he has got God behind him on his side. He runs away from it. The second thing we see here is that Elijah, who's arguably the boldest and most powerful of the prophets, he's depressed, focused inwardly instead of upwardly and thinking that he was the only one who was standing up for God. I'm the only one left. I'll share a principle with you. And this is a universal principle. It's one of those life principles that we as believers need to take to heart. Is whenever my focus is turned inwardly instead of upward, it's going to almost always distort the way I see things outwardly. Folks, we've got to be plugged into the source. Yeah, we can still get it wrong, but there's a whole lot greater chance that I'm not going to get it wrong if I'm going to the Lord, if I'm consulting him, if I'm seeking him. When I turn my focus inwardly and sometimes I think that I've got all this understanding and wisdom and all that and trying to figure it out, I'll tell you what, if you're in a place where that's the case, the Bible tells us in the book of Proverbs, there's safety, there's victory in a multitude of counselors. Check. Hold it up to the word of God. Hold it up to other people who are like-minded, who you know and you trust that their relationship with the Lord is solid. The Bible says, lean not to your own understanding, but in all of your ways, acknowledge him. If we don't, We're likely to get it wrong. We're likely to lead off in the arm of the flesh. Here's a freebie for you. Usually that's something that I hadn't really thought a lot about, but this can also be a snare. The attitude that Elijah had. When we start thinking that we're more spiritual than those around us, or maybe not thinking that other brothers and sisters in Christ are worth the time, they're not as committed as we are, or spiritual as we are, or, or, or. That's a slippery slope. Spiritual pride, hypocrisy creeping in. Elijah says, I alone am left. In verse 4, he says, but what does the divine response say to him? I like the way that Paul characterizes that. Uh, in First Kings 19.18, is what Paul quotes here. He says, I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. These are the guys that are still there, Elijah. No, you are not the only one left. I know it feels like that sometimes. You ever feel like that? I'm the only one standing here. Paul's second question, question and example from their past is to show that Israel had a long history of rebellion, disobedience, apostasy against God, and, and in Elijah's day, Ahab had been the king 
over the northern kingdom of Israel who had married a Phoenician woman named Jezebel. (laughs) That's the one that threatened Elijah with his life. She was a Phoenician woman. She wasn't a Jew. She wasn't from Israel. And Ahab had adopted her and promoted her practice of worshiping Baal. Uh, Ahab and Jezebel led Israel, they, they led Israel into the darkest, darkest days of their history. They were so wicked that they slaughtered all the priests who had remained faithful to God uh, during that time. In 1 Kings 16.33, we read, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. How'd you like that for a reputation? It was during that time, the time of Ahab and Jezebel, that Elijah was a prophet in Israel. Yet even in their persistent rebellion, God has always provided a remnant for himself, and that's Paul's point. And that's what God says to to, to Elijah, look, you might think that you're the only one. You look out and you see all of this wreckage out there from Ahab and Jezebel. But I have preserved for myself 7,000 men. He mildly rebukes Elijah for thinking that he was the only one. Verse 5, he says, even so then at the, this present time, there's a remnant according to the election of grace. Literally, that translates uh, that which has been chosen by grace. Now, looking at this, what Paul is saying is that there is a remnant in Israel of Israel now. In, in the time when he wrote this, he's saying, it might look bad, guys, but there are a great number of people. Yeah, most of the Jews were rejecting. Most of them would not come. They were so adamantly against Christ and adamantly against God's way of salvation that they said, no, 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 we're not going to do it. It goes against everything I've known from birth. And yet, and yet, there was a remnant. People who had Jews who had come to the Lord during that time. Jews who had embraced Messiah, Jesus as Messiah. Jews who had been added to the family of God. Were they a minority? Yes, they were. That's why he calls them a remnant. You know, my mother used to like to buy fabrics and she would go off to the fabric store and I would go with her as a little kid sometimes. And the first place she would head would be the remnant rack. <laughs> and what it is is you have a bolt of cloth and I mean, there's you know, tons of yardage on that thing. And when they get down to the end of that bolt of cloth and there's a scrap left, they would usually they'd fold it up and they'd put it in a rack or put it on a table or whatever. And those are the remnants. It's the small piece that's left over from the whole. And when he, it's the same principle here. What he's talking about is this small amount of people, this small section of, of Jews who had trusted Christ as it relates to the whole. That's where he's going with this. He's saying, God is not finished with Israel. There's a remnant. There's some people that have actually bowed the knee to Christ. Paul the apostle was a charter member, by the way. Here's the point. It was then that that was the case. And so it is now, is what Paul's saying. God, he didn't then, nor does he now, and will he will not in the future completely reject Israel, even when she is rejecting him. I look out at Israel today. The nation, the geographical nation, is essentially a godless nation. 
They're a very secular nation. Is God still, God's hand still on them? Yeah, it is. Crash boom. Yeah, his hand is still upon that nation. Is there a remnant of believing Jews? Yes, there are. Uh, I think about Jews for Jesus, wonderful organization. Uh, a group of, of charismatic, believing Jews, messianic Jews that have trusted Christ. Uh, many others. So God's not finished with her. The, the doctrine of salvation by the remnant is taught throughout Scripture. We see that constantly the people of God add up to a remnant. Noah, as I mentioned, many perished. A few, a remnant, was preserved. Back in Romans 10, the last chapter, we looked at Paul as he quoted Isaiah, speaking of Lot, jumping back. And Lot, when he says, unless the Lord of hosts had left to us a very small remnant, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like made like Gomorrah. What happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? They were obliterated. They were wiped off the face of the earth. And he's saying, you know, that would be us, except the Lord had preserved a very small remnant. After her exile, it would be a remnant in Israel who would return to the land. Looked at that. To this day, there, there, there remains a believing remnant, which are the Israel of God. Uh, those Jews who identify with Jesus as Messiah. Again, not a group, but a group of individuals. Got to make that distinction. The true people of God have always constituted a minority. Even now, thinking about Christians, the disparity between those who profess Christ as opposed to those who possess Christ is noteworthy. Not everyone who names the name of Christ is saved. And I want to caution with the same caution that Jesus gives us. He says, you know what? There is wheat and there there are weeds. He says, there are sheep and there are goats. It's not to you to try to figure out who's who. He says, I will take care of that. I will, I will separate the wheat from the weeds on the threshing floor of eternity. It's up to you to be faithful to God yourself. God, by means of his sovereign grace, has seen, he saw to it, as Paul was writing, that the remnant of Israel uh, had come into being, and they were a remnant chosen by his grace. He says in verse 6, that if by grace, then it's no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. What on earth is he saying in that? <laughs> Essentially, he's saying these two principles, grace and works, are mutually exclusive. They do not mix. That's why in Romans 6.23, Paul writes, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. What is a wage? It's something you earn. It's something you work for. A gift can't be earned. What is free cannot be bought. What is unmerited cannot be deserved. It is oil and water. You cannot mix those two. And what he is saying here is that God's choice had to be based on grace, not on works. Because if it was going to be based on works, no one would ever have been chosen. You ever think about that? 
If you want to base it on works, you cannot work hard enough. You cannot do enough good. You cannot lead enough little old ladies across the street, folks. It's not possible because there is always more. When Jesus was dealing with the rich young ruler and who came up to him, he said, tell me, good teacher. And Jesus said, why do you call me good? It's a whole different deal there. But he says, what must I do to inherit eternal, eternal life? And Jesus said, well, uh, he goes on and he says, you know, all of these things, I've kept the law. I've kept every, all of the rules from my birth. What is left? What, what else do I need to do? And Jesus knew this man's heart. He knew that he was basing it on works. And he said, go and sell all that you have and come and follow me. And it says that the man went away sad. Why? Why did he go away sad? Because if you're going to base it on works, there's always one more thing to do. That was essentially what Jesus was illustrating to this man then. There was nothing about, can I inherit salvation from you? It's all about, what can I do to work for it? You can't work hard enough. Grace is no longer grace. If you're going to add any work whatsoever. God's choice again, had to be based on grace. Otherwise, no one would be saved. So the vast majority of the Jews, that they had, and they had rejected Christ, they were still trying to receive God's righteousness through the law. Paul asserts here that a remnant of Israel is in Christ. And he's restating what grace means here. He wants to dispel any notion that the Jews standing before God is due to their own works. It is not. He's been hammering that home all through chapters 9, 10, and now 11. The idea that a person's work, such as keeping the law, could in some way contribute to receiving God's grace is a self-contradicting idea. It can't work. And you know what? The natural man, the, the, the person who doesn't know Christ... It will go that direction every time. Even though, if you really understand what's being said, it's illogical. It's absurd, actually. But, you know, as soon as I get my life together, and I've been told that a number of times over the years, well, then I'll come to God. What are you basing it on? Your goodness. Guess what? The Bible says that's like filthy rags. It's got to be based on the grace of God. Otherwise... It's a contradiction. And if that were possible, grace would not be grace. That's what Paul is saying here. In verse 7, he says, What then is Israel? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Or hardened is another way to render that. It's rendered that way in a number of translations. So what's he saying here? What he's saying, catch the irony here, guys. He's saying that Israel hasn't obtained what it seeks. They're trying to seek it on the basis of works. But the elect have obtained it because they're understanding that it's only by God's grace that I can come. In Romans chapter 10, the, the next to the last verse, Paul is quoting Isaiah 65, uh, verse 1. He says, I was sought by those who didn't ask for me and I was found by those who didn't seek me. We looked at that last week. Here you have Israel working hard, trying to do all this stuff to make themselves presentable to God. And then you have the Gentiles who aren't even looking for salvation, stumbling in and getting it, laying hold of it. That's so ironic. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying the elective obtained it. The rest were blinded. So what he's saying here is the Jews had zealously sought to be acceptable to God on on the basis of their works. 
and, and, and based in the righteousness which is in the law. However, they were not accepted by God. Only the elect were because of God's sovereign choice by grace. It had to be grace. Didn't matter whether they were a Jew or they were a Gentile. What matters was if they came by grace, which is proof that they were elect. I've told people many times over the years, you know, if you want to get hung up on the, the whole thing with, okay, here is free will on this side, and, and here is predestiny, and here is election on this side. If you want to know if you're elect, see, both are taught, both are true. One cancels the other if you try to make it stand on its own. If you want to know if you're the elect, choose Christ. That's, that's the election of grace. Understand that. It's not a complicated deal. However, again, that's one of those areas where you have finite man grasping the, 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 the thoughts and the methods of an infinite God, and you can really start to trip over that, and, and you can head trip all day long on that, and you won't find an answer this side of heaven that totally satisfies your intellect. But guess what? It's not based on your intellect or mine. It's based on God's sovereign choice. So it, Paul, even Paul saying here, he's saying the elected obtained God's righteousness uh, by grace. And he's saying the rest of the Israelites were hardened by God. Now, some people struggle with that, but we've covered this in a previous chapter. It's consistent with what Paul's already written about uh, because God allows people to stand in their sin of unbelief. Remember, we looked at Pharaoh and, and we looked at how many times Pharaoh said, it says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart, hardened his own heart, hardened his own heart, on and on and on. And finally it says, and God hardened his heart. Essentially God said, you want it that bad? You've got it. It's sort of the same thing here. He's saying, you know, if you want to reject and reject and reject and reject, I will allow you to be hardened. In verse 8, we see how the hardness comes about. He says, just as it's written... God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear to this very day, to the day when Paul wrote this letter to Rome. And I would submit to you to this very day as well. We're told in 2 Corinthians that a veil lies over the heart of the Jews. And that veil is removed through faith in Christ. So Paul's, he's reinforcing God's sovereignty here. He's reaching back again, as he does, into the Old Testament. In Isaiah 29, 9 and 10, he's speaking of, to, here, Isaiah the prophet is speaking to apostate Jerusalem. He says in verse 9 of Isaiah 29, he says, pause and wonder. Blind yourselves and be blind. There's man's part, blind yourselves. God's part, go ahead, be blind. They're drunk, but not with wine. They stagger, but not with intoxicating drink. For the Lord has poured out on you the spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes. That's that's just a really heavy statement. He combines that with Deuteronomy 29.4, where we read, Yet the Lord is not giving you a heart to perceive, and eyes to see, and ears to hear, to this very day. Speaking to rebellious Israel. Again, so in both instances, the people were overcome by a spirit of stupor or sleepiness. They were not given eyes to see or ears to hear or a heart to understand. I've prayed that this morning. It's something I pray often in my own prayer life. Lord, give me ears to hear. 
Give me eyes to see, please. By your Holy Spirit, open my understanding because left to myself, I've got nothing. I, I will never forget speaking with a number of inmates over the time that I was doing jail ministry. These guys had nothing but time on their hands. And, and I would talk to guys, they could re- practically recite the scripture backwards. They knew what the Bible said. And very often, if they had not come to faith, they had zero idea of what it, what was meant. And, and it was just a remarkable thing to me to see that you could have this thing memorized and by rote. But unless you've come to faith, unless the Spirit of God has opened your understanding, like like what Jesus did with the men on the road to Emmaus when they're just going along, they don't even recognize him. And he opens their understanding and boom, the lights come on and they know that they've been with Jesus. That principle still still works today. You can know a lot about God. But it's not about knowing about God. It's about knowing God. It's about knowing Christ. When we look at Pharaoh, we see that God, he just enhanced his resistance. And that's what Paul is talking about here with Israel. You want to reject and continue to reject and, and reject to the point where you have hardened your own heart? God will allow you to do that. And he enhanced their hardness. Verse 9, and David says, now he's going to go in, he's going to quote Psalm 69 here. David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their neck always. That is a picture. Now, Psalm 69 is a highly, highly messianic psalm. Uh, some of the things that Jesus had to say that he spoke from the cross we're quoting Psalm 69. So the picture here is that of the suffering Savior. And he's calling on God to turn their table into a snare and a trap. What should have been a blessing was turned into a curse as the suffering Savior, Savior calls on God to let their eyes be darkened and their bodies bent over as though they were old. What he, the picture here is of a, a very old person who just doesn't see, and they're just kind of wandering aimlessly. Essentially what Paul is quoting these, the reason why he's quoting this particular passage in Psalm 69 is these verses point to the enemies of the cross, and they point to judgment. That's the result of Israel's rejection. But not all. There's a remnant. The unbelieving Jews, through their own hardness, would be lulled into complacency they wouldn't realize that they were in mortal danger. That's what this illustrates here in in Psalm 69. Folks, for us, spiritual blindness is real, and it happens. I experienced a period in my life where I allowed myself to become spiritually blind. You know what, though? It, It is never. My will comes into play here. It is never the devil made me do it. That's blame shifting. That happened in the garden and it didn't fly with God with Adam and Eve then and it won't fly with God now. I cooperate with the God of this world. It says the God of this world has blinded their eyes. And we get ourselves into a place where we are cooperating with the God of this world because we want our way. We don't want to listen to God. We want to do what we're going to do. Be careful. Spiritual blindness is real. You literally become blind to the things of God. And sometimes it takes a jolt, did in my life, to wake up and to realize I've been going the wrong direction. 
These people were rejecting the truth and God had strengthened their rejection. And that prevented them from progressing further, prevented them from understanding. He's a big God. We don't understand all of his ways. We understand enough. We understand enough through passages like this that God is utterly concerned with the condition of our hearts. He is utterly concerned with the condition of our souls. And he's not messing around. I think very often, I was talking with somebody before the service this morning about what happens when God's people get pressed. We get pressed, we get stronger. We get serious with God on a level that perhaps we hadn't been serious before. And I'm not here to condemn anybody. I I mean, we live where we live. We live in a very cushy society. Do you know how many people, how many places around the world where people are being pressed, severely pressed? Our church participated in support for Afghan refugees. Uh, We were able to send a, a sizable donation to the ministry that's rescuing those people. Um, we can't even get word on what they're up to because they have blind ops with far-reaching ministries. We have information on them in the back table there, in the front table there. My point is, is that God is serious about his people. What Paul is saying here is he is serious about Israel. Is he uh, continuing to reach out, to hold his hands out? Yes, he is. With people who consistently and continually reject Are they in danger of him simply enhancing their rejection? Yes, they are. There's a point. I praise God in times when my soul has been lean that he didn't let go of me. Spiritual blindness, it's a real deal. Verse 11, he says, I say then, had they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. Again, there's that term. Adamantly, absolutely no chance. No, that ain't going to happen. They haven't stumbled that they should fall. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. There it is. Now, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? That's where we get to the good news. He's had a lot of stuff, real serious stuff to say here. But in verse 11, Paul asks yet another question which he anticipates from those reading his letter, the answer is essentially what he's doing. He's asking this question with a word picture. Remember, we've looked at it in in chapter nine, where they stumbled over the stumbling stone. They tripped. It was like the elevated sidewalk, you know, the the poorly, the the roots that are under the sidewalk that jacked up a section of it. And I remember, boy, my house, I, I was always tripping over that, especially if I was walking at night and I would stumble and, the first thing I'm doing is looking to see if anybody saw me and all of that. He's talking about the stumbling stone is Christ. So what he's saying here, he's saying, have they stumbled that they should fall? Did they trip over Jesus to the point where they're going to fall and not get up? That is what's clearly implied in the text here. He's saying, are they unable to get up? Are they unable to recover? And, and then he goes with that certain that he's saying essentially, not a chance, not a chance. We'll start with verse 11 next time. We're going to thoroughly examine Israel's jealousy, our riches, and their fullness. He's saying, you know, they are not only, they're not only as a remnant in Israel, 
but their fullness is coming. We're going to look at, and that goes out to the end of the age, during the Great Tribulation, which I believe could start any time, because that starts with the rapture when the church is taken out of here. When the restrainer is removed, Second Thessalonians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul says when the restrainer is removed, that the man of lawlessness is revealed. And that triggers the Great Tribulation. Folks, there is nothing that has to happen for that to take place. When we look at the references to the second coming, they are after the tribulation, at the end of the tribulation, and they cast a shadow, a long shadow through the tribulation into our day. That's why sometimes people get tripped up on that. They don't apply to us where we are today. Yes, they, they are shadows and they are indicators that time is short and we're seeing them. No better time to be in good shape with the Lord. No better time. If you, perhaps, the Lord has put his hand on you and you see some areas where you've loosened up, take a moment. Do business with him this morning as we close in prayer. Ask him to forgive you for your sins. Ask him to cleanse you. The Bible guarantees us that he will. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, I call it the Christian bar of soap. <laughs> he says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful, he's just. For, to forgive us for our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's how we maintain a walk with the Lord that is fruitful. It's not that we're not going to blow it. We are, all of us. But what are we going to do when we do? Are we going to harden our hearts like he's talking about here? Or are we going to come humbly before the Lord and say, you know what? I need your grace. I need your cleansing. I need your wisdom so I don't do it again or whatever it is. He's faithful. If you don't know Jesus this morning, perhaps you're watching online and and you don't know Christ, you realize that, that he's talking about a small percentage when he's talking about a remnant and you want to be part of that because the people of God, believe me, the people of God in general constitute a remnant on this earth. Come, allow God to touch your heart. Ask him to forgive you for your sins. He'll do it. Ask him to come in to take up residence in your heart. He'll do it. Salvation is simple. So simple that, as we've talked about, that often people miss it because they're looking for something complicated. He offers. His hand is held out. Won't you take it? Let's pray. Father, with this brief look at um, Romans chapter 11, uh, Lord, just I pray for each one here, each one catching this online, that you would pour out your spirit afresh on us, that we, Lord, would be named as the children of God, that we would be named as your people, and that we would stand proudly, that we'd stand strongly in that, realizing, Lord, it's not just us, that, that we're not doing this thing on our own. We're not doing it alone. But we do it, Lord, as, as your word tells us in Hebrews 11, surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses who have gone before us. Father, strengthen our hearts. Give us conviction. Give us commitment. Lord, walk with us through those difficulties that we're facing. I know many here in this room are facing some tall difficulties, some significant difficulties. We pray you're empowering, Lord. Grant ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts that understand what you have for each of us. As we go out from here, I pray that you bring to our remembrance those things that by your Holy Spirit you would have just for us. We thank you. 
We love you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.